0: Story, yeah.
1: So earlier this week, I decided to do away with my my luscious, beautiful, and Maddie-approved beard, and replace it with something that uh, my my delightful wife does not approve of.
2: Well, it's not that I don't approve; it's just not to my preference. Yes,
1: indeed. My and
2: this was a preference tone before you decided to have the preference to like it.
1: Yes. And Well, I, I just seem to come, I orbit back and forth, or orbit around, I should say, my stinky little, like, my stinky man
0: mustache.
2: I call it your, um, your, like, 1920s villain mustache that isn't waxed, because, like, you looked like Hollywood producer from back in the day. Yes. Yeah, so like, we're you're gonna like do a, an Mid-Atlantic, a mid-Atlantic accent Atlantic, at any
1: point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so normally, this is fine. You know, I push back on my my delightful wife, and I enjoy this kind of facial aesthetic that makes me happy. But today, well, today was the day when the mustache fought back, in a way. (laughs) I've never experienced this level of allergic reaction to pollen. And so consistently throughout my work day on this day was it July thirteenth twenty twenty two said mustache was a block full of snot, no matter what I did, and how I treated it
2: you don't really you're not one to blow your nose. this is like a thing I that was I've blowing never, it.
1: no, that's the thing. I was blowing really it to the point where like, like
2: this person never blows his nose. oh,
1: I was blowing it hard, I was blowing. All day long, baby, I was blowing. So I was on my knees and blowing constantly, (laughs) and that that stash was just a grimy, slimy, like pastiche of all my naughtiest desires. And everyone that walked by was like, "Hey, look at you! You're Mister Slime Man!" And I was like,
2: "So you looked like all those anime where there's just like a snot creature."
1: Uh, I don't know which anime you're looking at, but I can say yes
2: or like. Um, Demon Slayer, I think there's probably one in Naruto as well. It's like there's just a character that constantly has snot running down their nose for no reason.
1: Well, I, yeah, I can say like that yes, kid. I I look like the anime characters, not the ones with snot running down their face.
2: Okay, then what anime character?
1: Welcome everybody to ADD Storytelling, the podcast in which we explore the myths and legends of our time, the past, present, and future. In no particular order, and sometimes with less than perfect focus, I'm your snotty, Nikki, <laughs> snotty, <laughs> nasty man, Tucker, and I'm joined, as always, by our beautiful, newer NeuroDivision host,
0: Maddie. How's it going, Maddie? You don't well, look
2: my snotty. My allergies are also trash, Yeah, but I took the pill this morning for allergies so it's just a minor sinus headache problem good for you so things you should donate to this week the Trevor Project
1: perfect segue
2: the Lavender Rights Project National Suicide Prevention
0: Hotline Planned Parenthood your local abortion clinic yep all those things anyway Segue back to what we're doing.
2: This is a segue. <laughs> Today, we are talking about fossil mythology. I mean, this might even be a three-parter, if I stay interested in the topic.
1: Well, we've started a, a few one-parters, or two-parters, that we've never come back to, so are we kind of jumping around the timeline?
2: You, we've had part ones
1: mm-hmm.
2: of some things. Mm-hmm. But most of them we do a part two.
1: Yeah, I'm still looking forward to the part two of the Indigenous Peoples and Gender.
2: Oh, yeah, the Indigenous Gender Anthology. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's going to take months of research, of when I have time to research outside of researching what I'm researching because it's like super complicated. But. Mm. All right. Yeah, sometime. Anywhozel. Let's just say Fossil Mythology. Fossil sure. Mythology Part 1. That's what we're doing.
1: Asia Edition.
2: Two or three partner. This is Asia Edition. The sources we're doing today. The Folklore of Dinosaur Trackways in China. Its Impact on Paleontology. Uh, this is Lida Jing, Adrian Mayer, Yu Chen, Gerald D. Harris, and Michael E. Burns. This is an academic paper. That's why there's so many authors. And... There's The First Fossil Hunters, Dinosaurs, Mammoths, and Myth in Greek and Roman Times by Adrian Mayer as well. Oh, and Encyclopedia Britannica. At one point, I used that because I was going to use Wikipedia, but then it had conflicting things. So then I just used a British encyclopedia, which I'm not super fond of, but I did do.
1: A British encyclopedia as opposed to Encyclopedia Britannica, which would be.
2: That's what I said. British what
1: is. Encyclopedia. That's what
2: I said. Mm. As you may be aware, people have been finding fossils for quite some time. You know. Centuries.
1: They no, I mean they're only about two thousand years old though. What? The fossils. No. Because God made Earth um about <laughs> six thousand years ago.
2: Yeah, that's incorrect.
1: <laughs> what do you
0: mean? <laughs> Wait, wait, Maddie. Is this a bit?
1: No, it's not a bit. This is what I've always known and held true. God made Earth about 8,000 years ago, and we keep finding these lizard bones that were planted there to test us.
2: You just said 6,000 a second ago.
1: Yeah, you know. Whatever. My faith is kind of fluid. Um, But we keep finding these lizard bones, and they're here to test our, test our faith.
2: Oh, okay. Well, this actually falls into the my segue as in, how do we explain these creatures or pieces of creatures?
1: Um, the deep state.
2: Fossil folklore. That's where that comes in. That's oh. interesting. That's what we're talking about. So, we've got fossil myths today from China and the Gobi Desert.
1: So, when you say fossil folklore, you mean like...
2: Descriptions of fossils that people have come up with when they couldn't actually use the scientific definition of fossils.
1: See, so not like banjo related awesome music. No, no
2: more like, um, you know, explanations before the explanations kind of thing.
1: Okay, when one came across a fossilized skeleton in like a cross section of Earth where you could see the different sediment, sedimentary layers, and that organism existing within it rather than. Scientifically, kind of breaking down why it was there, they would read into it a kind of folkloric idea of its backstory.
2: You know, you can also just find fossils in the middle of the desert, or like a mountain can break away and you can see something and it can unearth at any point in certain places. You
1: can be building a structure out of limestone, and as you like cut the stones to create said structure. Find tons and tons of uh, fossils.
2: Exactly. So apparently, fossilized tracks in China are often known to locals of many generations before being investigated by scientists. So trackways can be exposed for a relatively long time on rock surfaces, and are less susceptible to removal or erosion. Trackways being like fossilized tracks of like a dinosaur or some something, versus like the bones, right? So the most ancient record of fossils in China may be the Shanghai Jing, uh, which is the Classic of Mountains and Seas, translated.
1: Classic of Mountains and Seas?
2: Yeah, that's what the book is translated to be called.
1: Is that a play on the fact that what were seas in the ancient times are now mountains? Like with, uh, you know, how we find... The majority of the dinosaur bones that we discover in North America, uh, in places like Utah and Nevada, areas that were once submerged by water,
2: it's got a more generic, um, like application. So it's it contains oral mythio geographical stories compiled from oral tradition since the third century BCE. I see. So it's more like Things about places that people talk about fossilized things are in there.
0: Rather than, okay.
2: In China, uh, long, which is pronounced some Chinese vowel of O that I don't know, dragon bones, quote unquote, was a catch-all label for all fossil remains of extinct creatures, mammals and dinosaurs, traditionally regarded as medicinal. Recently, Chinese paleontologists have discovered previously unknown dinosaur fossil deposits by enlisting the help of farmers who know sites of quote-unquote dragon bones.
1: That implies that there's been a crucial hand-down of this knowledge of an area wherein which dinosaur bones are
0: more uh, evenly distributed? Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so...
1: So, that implies a lot.
2: Yeah, so that people have known about fossil deposits for centuries and have been using them in traditional Chinese medicine for like quite some time, mm-hmm. and they're only now being like sort of investigated by Chinese paleontologists because everybody's just like, "Oh yeah, you just use it for medicine," and nobody's really thinking about it. Are you okay? You look like you're dying.
1: No, I'm I'm good. I'm just in deep thought.
2: Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I mean, but it also implies that. um So is this location something like the first thing that comes to mind with regards to... There's uh, more than one location. Deposits of...
2: Several locations.
1: True. I mean, fair enough. But like an area where we would find a large deposit of fossils, that would usually be something like a, um, say, for example, in LA, the uh, tar pits. Why would there be specific locations in which a large deposit of animals would die?
2: I don't know. You'll have to ask some paleontologists. But apparently, that you can just fucking dig them up in the fields in China, because that's one of the peasant omens.
1: That doesn't make any sense. Uh, I mean,
2: I mean, let me continue. Yes. So, thirteenth century Chinese travelers had a fear of the ominous fields of white bones and heaps of hard, bright stones-like bones in the deserts around Turfan and Lop Nur, um, old Isidonian lands rumored to be haunted by terrifying dragons and demons. It's generally believed that the earliest written description of dragon bones appears in the Chinese Chronicle of the 2nd century BCE. So there's a big canal uh, where dragon bones were often found named the Dragonhead Waterway. And that's where a lot of the traditional medicinal dragon bone stuff comes from, like as a traditional place that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. And like I was saying, the peasant omens, one of these peasant omens is dragons encountered in the fields. So what does that mean? This omen refers to farmers ploughing up prehistoric bones in cultivated fields, a common occurrence in fossil ferrous regions. So fossil
1: what regions? So, so for the word
2: um... fossil? Fossiliferous. Oh, there's an I in there. Fossiliferous. Do you want me to look it up? Okay. I'm thinking it means abundant in fossils. According to the I Ching, which is the chronicle from the 2nd century BCE, this was a good omen. Indeed, such a fine was a cash crop, since these dragon bones and teeth have been harvested from the earth as folk remedies for millennia in China. And farmers sometimes counted on the extra income they received from these bones, and many worked through the winter months in long-established fossil-digging operations. Suppliers of Chinese apothecaries hid their sources, although they, they themselves care for. This was, like, a common practice, right? And then, randomly, um, they would export these fossils to Europe, and some European scientists would be like, huh, these are, like, bones. I wonder if I studied them, <laughs> if I would find something. And one Austrian dude, I think he's Austrian, one dude from Europe, let's just so, say that, Zdansky, identified many extinct P- uh, Pliocene species, including an equine and deer, so from these imported Chinese bones.
1: You found Paleocene specimens from these Chinese imports. Yeah. The, no, the M.O. Of the Chinese, like, merchants, though, was to more or less grind them up and create, like, tonics and things from these bones?
0: Yeah, uh-huh. Ah. That sucks.
2: They're just really abundant, I guess.
0: Yeah.
1: Why? Fascinated here.
2: <sighs> okay, so we learned that the workers recognized the bones, teeth, and antlers as belonging to strange versions of familiar species, such as horses and deer.
1: Strange virgins like horses.
2: Versions.
1: Oh. versions. horses are strange of versions. Familiar
2: though. species. Although by convention, everyone called all petrified remains "dragon bones," quote unquote. The British paleontologist Ken Kenneth Oakley. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> cool that's a name. funny name. Has shown that certain features of the traditional Chinese dragon, such as the distinctive antlers resembling those of fossil deer, replicated the limits of Pliocene and Pleistocene prehistoric mammals of northern China and Mongolia.
1: I would take a closer look at these, but sadly, being Kenneth Oakley, my eyes are forever sh- shaded by these. <sighs> it, it pains me to say it, but these, these glasses that are aerodynamic in nature, <laughs> yet bright blue. They wrap around my head, and I I can't see anything save for in a bright (laughs) light.
2: So consider our name for Dinosauria, which means uh, terrible lizards in, like, whatever it is, Latin. Even though we know that the name...
1: Terrible lizard.
2: ...is, like, conjuring up, like, a reptile, like something cold-blooded and sluggish and dim-witted, we go on calling him that, even though all points, like, all, there's a whole bunch of things that we call dinosaur bones, like saber-toothed tigers and, like, bird-like things and, like, other things. Is and... that
1: the case? I, I feel like we just say fossil. I feel like dinosaur does specifically refer to anything Chris Pratt has found at this point.
2: In discussing the history of the word dinosaur, Montana paleontologist Jack Horner points out, that the misnomer perpetuated unexamined assumptions about the image and behavior of dinosaurs. That name shaped the search image of paleontologists, leading them to overlook, misinterpret, or dismiss any evidence that contradicted their image of dinosaurs as cold-blooded lizards. So, like, this convention kind of blinded people over time.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, the initial idea of fossils certainly, like, fucked people up. The idea that there were creatures that existed before recorded time. Yeah, but now we know I I would say in the common lexicon, dinosaur does specifically refer to the reptiles. Right? Like when you But they're not
2: reptiles. Dinosaurs were warm blooded, so they're not reptiles by definition.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm a naive, ignorant idiot, but I am talking about but, what you just described. Yeah, but what I, I just
2: described was that... But, like, the <laughs>
1: woolly mammoth and the um the saber-toothed tiger, I don't consider dinosaurs.
2: Yeah, but, like, when they were digging them up, like, people consider that to be of dinosaur age.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: So okay. it's within the monolith of, like, yeah. dinosaur stuff.
0: True. Okay. Fair enough. So. So. Yeah. Yes.
2: Okay. So now let's talk about the tracks found in China yes so the first thing is the shenyao the divine bird tracks so in 1979 Yu gao from the langzu institute of desert research of chinese academy of sciences <laughs> found a set of theropod tracks in the chabu area inner mongolia this was the first record of tracks in this region however since at least the 50s the tracks were well known to the herds people of the region refer to them as the Shen Miao Tracks. They believe that the tracks represented beautiful wishes for human happiness left by the sacred bird Shen Miao. It's so cute. It's really nice. It's so nice. So, among the abundant theropod footprints is the holotype specimen of Loch Leyi.
1: Okay, try that again?
2: <sighs> That's how it's spelled. Lachleyi.
1: Is this a uh, Scottish thing?
2: It's That's like its Latin name.
1: Oh, okay. I the, thought you were... the
2: dinosaur thing. I see. <laughs> so the track is 23 inches long, or 58.2 centimeters, and preserves distinct claw impressions. So the bird-like appearance of the dinosaur impressions is the primary reason the hersman called them like divine bird tracks. Mm-hmm. In addition, the track site does include some smaller avian footprints. So it has these theropod tracks and it also has smaller bird tracks in the same area yeah so
0: Mm. but if they well we have no idea about that of course but
2: yeah that's one theory that you could posit that the avian tracks were related to the larger theropod tracks Mm. which is what they did because there was recognizable avian tracks they were like oh That one that looks like a bird must also be giant bird tracks, and that must be a divine bird, because we don't have any birds
1: that are that fucking big. What if it's a baby bird, though? What is if It's like a little baby bird that wants to follow along with its marvelous twat.
2: It's probably like, they're probably distinct enough that the paleontologists were able to tell.
1: They would be able to tell if it was a baby's foot. (laughs)
0: So next,
2: did I mention that it would like the presence of the avian tracks makes it like normal that they would assume that it's a large bird? Yes. I think I did. Yeah. Okay. So the next is the Fengwang tracks. In 2001, Deng soon from the Chicheng County Vocational Education Center discovered abundant dino tracks in Chicheng County, Hebei Province. More than a hundred tracks attributed um, to the rings. Okay, the ring goes podus and Megalosaurus.
0: Nice. Latin.
2: <laughs> We're found. All the tracks are a tridactyl, ranging um, from six to twenty. 20-
1: three-footed idiots.
2: 3 three prongs. Three-toed. Three-toed. Yes,
1: not three-footed. Yeah. Of course, that would be absolutely monstrous.
2: 16 to 22 centimeters, or 6 to 8.5 inches in length. And they preserve the claw impressions as well, so it gives them more appearance of bird-like stuff.
1: So what you're saying is they, uh, they discovered these impressions in the ground and they made casts of them.
2: No, they they found them. Oh. So, the names of the location, the Fong Mountain and the Luofengpo, Po, derive from legends of the mythical birds. So, those tracks found at the site that soon found in Qingche are located on the Fangwing Wing mountainside.
1: And these birds, are they like
0: are they similar to uh, Western ideas of mythical birds like the Thunderbird or? Quest uh, code or anything like that.
2: Mm, I'm not sure, but I have a par- I have a paragraph about the bird after I finish this paragraph. Okay, the mountainside on which the trackside is visible, like in the stone, means was known as Loa Genpo, which means the ravine of the fallen Fong Wang. So the liter the locals literally knew exactly where the tracks were, and no one went to go look for the dino tracks until just recently, till 2001, to see if they were dinosaurs at all. And the reason they were attributed to being a divine bird is because the tracks are imprinted directly in the stone.
1: Wait, is that like a conspiracy theory? Like, why, why would they only know in 2001 where to, where to find these tracks? Is it only recently discovered?
2: So they were recently categorized as dinosaur tracks mm-hmm. in 2001, mm-hmm. but the locals have known about them and named them after the tracks, the mountain For itself,
0: okay.
2: and the place on the mountainside where the tracks are after the divine bird.
0: Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense.
2: Legends has it that Wing Mountain is where the, di- the great bird goes to rest. The mythical Feng Wang is described in um the Shanhai Jing as the mythical bird who rules over all of other birds. So pictures of it are on pottery and in bronze and jade figures since the Shang dynasty, which is sixteen hundred to ten forty-six BCE.
1: Like a bird that rules over other birds though, that seems unusual in Chinese mythology. Could bird be translated or misconstrued as dragon or is this no no it's specifically bird
2: it's definitely bird okay it's an immortal bird though similar whose rare like appearance what
0: like a phoenix
2: i mean it doesn't have any similar things to a phoenix but yeah it's a big bird that's immortal
0: all right I like it
2: mm-hmm. whose rare appearance is said to be an omen for telling harmony at the ascent to the throne of a new emperor. The fang wang is often considered to signify both male fang and female huang elements in harmony. It also appears to be a symbol of Confucian values, wearing it the characters meaning virtue, duty, ritual, compassion, and trust on various parts of its body and illustrations. If seen, it is a sign of world peace. Apparently, its latest appearance is said to have taken place in the Anhui province at the grave of the father of Hongwu, the founder of the Ming dynasty in 1368. It's also said the song of a Feng Wang is exceptionally beautiful and that the animal has a special appreciation of human music. It's also supposed to have like five spiritual colors and be related to Confucian values later after the Shang dynasty, but not technically in the Shang dynasty.
1: So this all comes from the, uh, the fossils that have been discovered.
0: That's the theory.
1: hmm And they're...
0: They're projected upon the idea of these, uh, like, large birds and mythical birds. Uh-huh.
1: Okay. I see, like, my brain is, is struggling to, uh, just differentiate these large birds from, like, things I've already, like, Known about like dragons and phoenixes and things like that, but it's not because of your telling of the story that I'm confused, it's my own hang-ups
0: Okay, uh, there's also a golden chicken,
2: so okay. we'll move on to now. That. I'm back. Jinji, the golden chicken, mm-hmm. in 1982, Xiao Jin Hu from the jinning County Cultural Palace discovered abundant dinosaur tracks at Kuming City. In Yunnan province. hmm Yunnan province.
1: So tell me more.
2: The local Yi people called them the footprints of the golden chicken and worship them in festivals. Evidence for domestic poultry appeared as late as the late Neolithic period in China. Also, hunting fowl and training eagles or hawks were also ancient practices in China. So divine chickens and other birds were revered early in Chinese history.
1: Do you remember in Jurassic Park 2, like, that first opening scene where uh, that man, I think that man and his daughter are devoured by, like, those teeny tiny little green dinosaurs?
0: Nope. Don't remember that They're at like all. They're,
1: chicken size. They're small and green. And
0: like little raptors?
1: Yeah. Pretty much. They just pick them apart.
0: Well, I think these are still pretty
1: large. Yeah, I just... I like to think that uh, (laughs) these tracks that you're describing are the... I mean, not to say that the Jurassic Park films are, and I'm using film loosely, uh, more accurate than the ancient Chinese depictions or uh, belief in the fossilized fossilized tracks that they're uh, referring to. But I'm just saying... It's fun to think about
0: if uh, these chickens were actually, like, these little, like, ravenous little monsters.
1: (laughs) I'm Uh, sorry, I derailed us entirely.
2: No, that's fine. No. Lacking an understanding of the process of fossilization, ye storytellers assumed that the footprints were imprinted directly into the stone. Mm -hmm. The ability to create a footprint on solid stone implied something supernatural about the track makers. Mm. During funeral processions, villagers gather and walk along the orientation of the sacred trackway, believing that it represents the pathway to heaven. And there is a lot of Chinese mythology, like just generally, about like birds, chickens, roosters, things like that being the closest way or creature to heaven. So, like, the in the Chinese Zodiac, the rooster is considered to be the closest to God because of its wings. Zen et al., that means, for academic papers, that means more people, <laughs> in 1986, described more than 200 dinosaur tracks at the Jiaojian village, all tridactyl and possessing distinct claw impressions, and referred the specimens to the Gralator Ubrontis type. Ralator tracks lack characteristic webbed toes of living anseriform waterfowl. Accordingly, the legends attributed to such footprints to such three-toed birds as poultry or eagles, rather than to ducks or geese. So, the basically that's implying that the local people recognized avian tracks enough to realize that it wasn't.
1: They know what's duck, what's not duck.
2: Yeah. So that's why they said it's a divine chicken versus, like, a divine other fowl. We
1: know what we know what chicken is. This ain't chicken. Yeah. This ain't pigeon.
2: I mean, it's more like chicken tracks than not, is what they're saying, though.
0: <laughs> so that's all the bird
2: tracks. Oh! Go! <laughs> I also want to talk about this plant trace of fossil thing from this article, because it was really interesting.
0: Sounds scientific, yes. Let's do it.
2: Ba 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 ba. In 2006, personnel from the Xijing <laughs> County Bureau of Land and Resources, Chongqing, in southeast Sichuan, geological team discovered a rich collection of dinosaur tracks.
0: You're loving it. Ba, da, ba, ba, ba. <laughs>
2: The site includes at least 329 footprints spread out over an area of 140 meters squared. So that's a that's an area. Huge. Uh, Jing and all attributed these hadrosaurs, attributed these two hadrosaurs, ankylosaurs, and theropods. The track site is located in a massive erosional break where mudstone has been weathered from between thick sandstone layers on a cliff. A rock shelter was built at this fossil site about 750 years ago. During investigations in 2007 and 2009, they discovered a rock carved inscription dating back to the Southern Song Dynasty. The inscription
0: rings... Oh, you want to read it? That's right there, the inscription reads
1: that. Jiang Chi." Courtesy named Yin Shu Jianwan, a scholar who won first place in provincial imperial examinations. It cost 500,000 kyun, ancient Chinese currency, to build this shelter in the winter of Bayou, fourth year, 1256, Southern Song Dynasty.
2: So th- they knew about these fossils enough, you know, 800 years ago to build this fossil site yeah they' the a structure, which is cool. This is the first record of construction of the fossil site, apparently selected because the tracks were interpreted as bestowing supernatural protection. Hmm. It also might have been part of defenses against attacks from Mongolia in Dao Guang nineteenth year, which is eighteen thirty nine evidently a military officer writing the history of Zhejiang County confirmed the history of the shelter, and left another inscription. So that's interesting. In Tongzi first year, Qing Dynasty, 1862, the site was named Lianhua Baozai, which translates as the mountain stronghold protected by lotus. So, you know, lotus symbolizes purity and such. Um, According to local folklore, the hearted... Huh?
1: It's purity as well as protection.
2: Yes. The hardened mud cracks at the track site represent the veins of lotus leaves. The hadrosaur tracks with ovoid digits, one through, t- sorry, two through four, and clover leaf shaped metatarsal phalangeal paths.
1: So your hand. <laughs> That's your hand.
2: Were interpreted as the remains of the petals of lotus blossoms. Fossilized ripple marks preserved on the strata indicated past aquatic environment. Anticipating the modern sedimentological interpretations, these ripple marks were noticed in antiquity and suggested the watery habitat of lo- lotus flowers. They're saying yeah, that sorry, basically, what? so basically, they're saying that based on the relative shape of these tracks and the obvious like ripple water marks, the ancients decided that this was most likely lotus flowers because they resembled lotus flowers, and they knew that they had to be like aquatic because of the water tracks mm-hmm.
1: and because lotus flowers have to exist in water
2: and because they had leaves looking things. They're like, Oh, these are probably plant impressions. And this is like the protection of ancient sacred Lotus. And that makes sense, especially since the weird leaf like structure of Lotus, that people eat like Lotus root, things like that. Um, but
0: what could it be? As ancient alien theorists suggest.
2: It's actually just dinosaur giants, which is interesting. No,
0: oh, never mind.
2: But the folklore made sense based on the observational, observational knowledge that they had at the time. So yeah, let's talk about now the griffin. Let's move on to the Gobi Desert and the mountains and such.
0: Okay.
1: That are around it. Do we have the Mongolian deathworm coming up?
2: No deathworms. You can bring that up if it comes up, though.
1: Huh. I'm just hoping for any new information that might prove it exists.
2: Nearly 3,000 years ago, Saka Scythian nomads prospected for gold in the western reaches of the Gobi Desert between the Tian Shen and Altai Mountains.
1: Well, here in the Gobi Mountains, uh, we are a prospector, boys. Yeah, and you're getting golden, damn hills. No, I'm not even getting. No, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut
2: it. I'm gonna keep it in, but you're sleepy.
1: No, oh, I am sleepy. <laughs> well, uh, gotta
2: keep going, keep going. Oh, that's a
1: llama. Well, that's just llama drama, is what we say. We'll keep it moving.
2: Okay. <clears throat> Sometime in the seventh century BCE. Greeks first made contact with Scythian nomads. Along with gold and other exotic goods from the east came folklore about the remote land and its inhabitants.
1: The remote land being?
2: The Gobi Desert. Ah. And the mountains around it.
1: The northern area of
0: Mongolia.
2: Yeah. Yes. One such tale about gold guarding guarding griffins first appeared in writing in an epic poem about Scythia written by a traveler named... Aristius, a Greek from inland sea, of um, Mor- Marmura. Nail it. <laughs> There's no quote here.
1: No, no quote. No, oh, there will be quotes later. The quote. Never mind. Okay. Well, when I came upon the vast desert, I saw a gleaming sea of sand, golden color, and right hot with flavor.
2: Aristeas visited the easternmost tribe of the Scythian nomads, the Isidonians, at the base of the Altai Mountains in about
1: 675 BCE. Oh, a $20 entry fee. I can deal with that. Nice. (laughs) I'm just going to hang out here on the edge of the the desert. Oh, yes. Oh, I would love a a mm, cocktail. Thank you.
2: These people told him about the vast wilderness beyond Isidonia, where gold was defended by fierce griffins.
1: It's called Bakersfield, is it? Yes, I I do not wish to travel there. I I shall stay here in Santa Cruz. Bakersfield sounds like a terrible, terrible place. It sounds like the one place where maybe the uh, one person that would go on to create a podcast would experience the first glory hole of his young, hot life. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Aristeus recorded that gold-seeking nomads on horseback battled griffins, and they described griffins as lion-sized predators with strong, wickedly curved beaks.
1: Oh my! That beak is wickedly curved. Well, carry on.
2: Scythia was an important source of gold in antiquity, an archaeologist
1: archaeologist. I love you, Archaeolol. <laughs>
2: Archaeologists have excavated spectacular gold treasures from the Saka tombs across southern Russia. Mm. Using a. We don't talk f-
1: about Russia.
2: <laughs> the, nom- <laughs> the nomads covered their goods with exuberant zoological designs in these tombs.
1: Watch me cover my goods and get out of Russia because this, this place seems to be going downhill.
2: Gold and bronze artifacts team with realistically detailed rams, deer, stag, horses, and eagles. Among these real animals are unknown combined animals, such as those similar to griffins. In the 1940s, someone named Rudenko excavated several 5th century BCE tombs on the northern slopes of the Altai Mountains in old Isidonian territory. Besides many gold artifacts featuring griffins, Rudenko was astonished to find some mummified nomads preserved in the permafrost for 2,500 years. The skin of one of the male warriors was covered with dark blue animal tattoos. He had several recognizable beasts inscribed on his body, but also several unknown creatures, including griffins. Decades later, in 1993 and 95, which is when me and my sister were born, Russian archaeologist archaeologist, I don't know why I can't say that word right now, unearthed <laughs> two more tattooed mummies of the near the same era as the first guy, and A young woman had a flamboyantly antlered deer and a griffin-like creature on her shoulder and wrist. And these tattooed images closely matched the earliest literary records and the bronze Greek griffins from Samos. So this implies that the nomadic people of the area knew of griffin folklore. Because they had them tattooed. Which is pretty interesting. Uh, Recent linguistic and archaeological studies confirmed that Greek and Roman trade with the Scythian nomads flourished in that region from Aristeas' day to about... CE 300, exactly the period during which griffins were most prominently featured in Greco-Roman art and literature.
1: Interesting. So, I mean, that's also the same time that, like, not only were griffins uh, featured, but as were uh, cherubs. This is the time of art where, like, the if we go back to my episode about uh, the levels of uh, angels, um, these are the low-level angels that are able to interact with
0: people in art. Our... Oh, the cherubim? Hmm?
2: Let's talk about the Gobi Desert. Let's. Herodotus, in his Histories from 430 BCE, described many of the cultural features confirmed by artifacts excavated from the Saka-Scythian graves found by Rudenko and others in South Russia and Kazakhstan.
0: Kazakhstan.
2: Kazakhstan, sorry. I added a syllable. (laughs) Linguistic analysis of the nomad's Indo-Iranian vocab, otherwise unknown to the Greeks, confirmed that this dude had access to genuine info from Central Asia. He was very um, tenacious in finding out facts, oral traditions, and local opinions. He invited readers to consider alternative versions of events, often adding his own comments.
1: Sounds like a Jesuit priest. Yeah, he doesn't have the best about...
2: academic reputation, apparently. Okay. As for the dangers of mining gold beyond Isidonia, Herodotus had heard that prospectors made long expeditions to remote deserts, marked by extreme heat and cold. Quote, I cannot say for sure how the gold is obtained there, he commented, but some say that one-eyed men called Arimaspians steal it from the Griffins. Ilion, a learned compiler of facts and popular knowledge about natural history in early 3rd century CE, is another author often dismissed as a perpetrator of fantasy. Like I said, that other guy doesn't have a great reputation. He drew on travelers' tales and written texts no longer available to us to write the most complete narrative we have about Griffins. You want to do this one? Oh, should we stop? No,
0: you keep going. I was really enjoying listening to you. Okay.
2: I'll do a voice then. I hear that the griffin is a quadruped like a lion, with talons of enormous strength that resemble the claws of a lion. It is reputed to have black plumage on its back with a red chest and white wings. Cetesius says the neck is variegated with dark blue feathers and has an eagle-like head and beak, just as artists portray. Griffins make nests near mountains, and although it is impossible to take on a full-grown griffin, people sometimes capture the chicks. The Bactrians say that griffins guard the gold of those pots which they dig up and weave into their nests. However, others sensibly deny that the creature would intentionally guard the gold. The truth is that when the prospectors approach, the griffins fear for their young, so give battle to the intruders. Tells how miners journey in caravans of one or two thousand men to the wilderness of gold deposits. I am informed, he says, that the return home after three or four years, dreading the strength of the griffins, the men avoid hunting for gold in the day. They approach at night when they are less likely to be detected. Now the place where the griffins live and the gold is found is a grim and terrible desert. Waiting for a moonless night, the treasure seekers come with shovels and sacks and dig. If they manage to elude the griffins, the men reap a double reward, or they escape with their lives and bring home a cargo of gold, rich profit for the dangers they face. So, in this desert, right, the Gobi Desert, a creature's remains might be alternately hidden and revealed by landslides, torrential range, blast floods, perpetual whirlwinds, and blizzards of sand and gravel. The sand sorbs themselves were legendary. During the Roman Empire, it was rumored that an entire legion of soldiers marching in these deserts had vanished forever in a cloud of swirling sand. Tears where white people come in and be annoying. You know. In 1920, the interest of an American adventurer, Roy Chapman Andrews, was piqued by reports of dragon teeth and bones from the Gobi Desert. Uh, He knew that a Russian geologist had collected a fossil rhinoceros tooth that on the old caravan route, in 1892, he examined specimens purchased by the paleontologist Walter Granger in 1921 from peasant diggers at dragon Bone Dragonbone. Following ancient caravan trails from China through the desolate landscape in southwestern Mongolia, the team discovered, on the surface or only partially embedded, a multitude of fossils. The men were incredulous at the sheer numbers. In Andrew's words, Remains appeared to be strewn over the surface almost as thickly as stones, and the ground seemed to be paved with bones. Many of the species were dinosaurs new to science, and Andrews' team was the first to recognize dinosaur nests and eggs. The spectacular finds were shipped from New York, uh, shipped to New York with great fanfare. Andrews' original photographs show dinosaurs emerging from the ground that combine the features of birds and mammals in a very striking way. The body of the hatchet face protoceratops is about 6 to 8 feet, 2 meters long, roughly the size of a lion, has four limbs, but the head has a nasty-looking beak, large eye sockets, and a thin, bony frill at the back of its skull. The smaller, 4 to 6 feet long, about 1.5 meter, a uh, sitiococerus parrot-beaked, has very prominent jugals or cheek projections. In these deserts, the exquisitely preserved skeletons are frequently fully articulated, with the beak skulls still attached. Tiny surface features, grooves and pits that mark the routes of blood vessels and nerves are still evident. The beak and hip structures of the protoceratops and its relatives do resemble those of birds, something the ancient Asian nomads, as falconers familiar with large raptors, could hardly fail to notice. The eggs, which we now know belong to several dinosaur species, were arranged the way living birds arrange their eggs. Andrew's highly publicized shipments of Gobi fossils to the United States and his auction of dinosaur eggs, $5,000 each, angered the Mongolians and the Chinese who forbade further Western expeditions in the Gobi. So we messed that up by being just obnoxious American people. It seems Tucker has fallen fully asleep at this point.
0: Well, we'll continue
2: on. (laughs) So lastly, we have um, the two types of fossils, the protocerotype and the psittacoceros are similar enough to griffins that it would make the legend definitely easy to, like, begin. Especially if you're just finding it in the middle of the desert or, like, just randomly when you're looking for other stuff and you're, like, coming across it, so. Yeah. Okay. Modern Observations of the Gobi, and also Conclusions of the Author, which is uh, Ms. Mayer. In 1986, in the remote Xinjiang province of northwestern China, the Canada-Chinese Dinosaur Project, led by paleontologists Dale Russell, Philip Curry, and Dong uh, Ming, began to explore the western extension of the Gobi Desert in the heart of ancient Isidonia. The red rock formations of the Jungar Basin Badlands and the foothills of the Tian Shan yield an equally rich array of dinosaurs, from the Triassic to the Cretaceous periods. Nests and eggs are also common. Here, Cidiocosaurs are very plentiful. Indeed, the parrot beaks are the most abundant dinosaurs known. Each dinosaurs have also been found even farther west along the old Caravan Ridge. In the he become desert in Uzbekistan. The desert is extremely arid with little vegetation, so it's possible to spot fossils on the ground. The shapes of skulls and skeletons are quite obvious, even to amateurs, and the surrounding rock is soft and crumbly, making it easy to uncover partially embedded bones. And the white bones stand out against the red matrix. 1993, Whew. Many more articulated protoceratops skeletons were found standing on their hind legs in poses indicating they died during sandstorms. Superb specimens, quote unquote, of beak dinosaurs, often preserved in lifelike poses, are the most ubiquitous remains in the Gobi Desert, says Peter Dodson in the book The Horned Dinosaurs. When the author contacted Russell and Curry, which were the people that found the bunch of stuff, In the remote province in northwestern China, to see what they thought about the theories about the origin of the griffin legend, they agreed that ancient nomads certainly would have observed constantly emerging, fully articulated skeletons of beat dinosaurs. The protoceratopsids are about the size of wolves or lions, and they resemble large, flightless, four legged raptors. The fossil beds' proximity to gold deposits led to the notion that they guarded, quote unquote, the approaches to gold in the altai foothills the mystery that had begun on the greek island of samos was solved the long lost griffin was at last found in its original central asian homeland <laughs> like modern paleontologists the ancient observers of griffin bones relied on what they knew about familiar animals to visualize what creatures would have been like in life as hunters falconers and herdspeople. They were knowledgeable about the anatomy and behavior of raptors and mammals. They were keen observers, as evidenced in the realistic details of the Scythian animal art. Modern travelers confirm that minerals are exposed after hellacious windstorms in the Gobi Desert. A chance find of a gold particle lodged in among petrified dinosaur eggs might well have sparked the ancient idea that griffins had gathered the gold.
0: So that's the
2: fossil originating legends of the griffin and griffin art in Greco-Roman pottery and also in gold and bronze Scythian tombs. It's pretty interesting.
0: Tucker! Tucker!
2: Tucker! Tucker! Well, this is the first episode of general ADD story telling where, um, the second host has actually fallen asleep, which I feel like it should have happened on a Tucker Out episode, but it didn't. Um. <laughs>
0: this is what happens when we crunch our deadlines.
2: Thanks so much for listening. Tucker will be so awake on the next episode. You can follow us at ADD Storytelling Podcast on Instagram, on TikTok, at ADD underscore storytelling. You can email us at ADDStoryteller at gmail.com. And you can support our podcast at anchor.fm slash ADD Storyteller. Hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll have another episode next week about Himalayan fossils and fossils in ancient India. Um, And maybe this will extend for another week. We'll see. Okay, thanks so much. Say
0: goodnight to Tucker. Night, Tucker. Bye. <laughs>